Welcome to another installment of the Voris at Work podcast. Uh, I'm your host for this episode, Chaz Billington. I'm a partner in Voris Labor and Employment Group. This episode, we are joined by a very special guest, Angela Simmons, who's Associate General Counsel for Parker Hannafin Corporation, uh, which is a Fortune 250 Northeastern Ohio manufacturer. More on that in the episode. This episode, we're going to be talking about how to get your organization ready for a lawsuit. And it's prompted by what we're calling the tidal wave, quotes, of employment litigation, which has been about 400 lawsuits filed in the last couple of weeks in Ohio. That wave was prompted by a sea change in Ohio's employment laws, which for all intents and purposes just made it really harder for uh, plaintiffs to file employment lawsuits. To get ahead of the effective date um, of the new law, plaintiffs simply filed suit. So organizations large and small across Ohio were hit with employment lawsuits out of the blue, um, and it was every organization across every industry. So if you haven't been sued, this episode will help you get your ducks in a row to help you shore up your defense. If you have been sued, this episode will help you develop uh, processes and best practices to save time and money in your defense. And with that, here's my discussion with Angela Simmons. Today, we are joined by Angela Simmons, um, and I'm going to let Angela go ahead and give her own title and uh, idea of what she does so you guys can get an idea of why she's helpful on this topic and how she can help you. Angela? Yep. Thanks, Chaz. So, so my, I'm Associate General Counsel at Parker Hannafin, and my uh, role is focused on labor and employment law, so anything related to employee issues, policy issues, uh, employee litigation, everything that falls under what affects our workforce. Finally. And just so folks can get an idea of Parker, you know, I, just for full disclosure, I used to work at Parker and Angela yeah, was my did. boss. Uh, yeah. The good old days. And um, one of the things that I think people don't know a lot about, I want to give people an idea of what Parker is. The saying I always heard internally of Parker is yeah. if it moves, Parker has a product in it. Um, but tell them, tell the audience a little bit about how big is Parker? How many employees are within oh. the, let's say North America? Yeah. So in, in North America, we have roughly 35,000 uh, employees. Worldwide, we're at about 55,000. We are the number one motion and controls technology company. What that means in, in real life is that, like Chaz said, anything that moves probably has a Parker part in it. But a lot of things that don't move have Parker parts in it because there are things inside of that product that need to be controlled or move inside. Um, the way I put it is it's harder to find something that Parker isn't in right. than not. We cover pretty much every industry from aerospace down to medical equipment, anything in between, anything that's manufactured, there's a good chance that Parker somehow has a product inside of it. Parker is one of those biggest companies you've never heard of type thing. Thank you. That's another thing I like to say. That's a good uh, tagline for it. I used to think we're like BASF in that we don't make the things you buy, but we make stuff that's in the things you buy. So. Yeah. Yeah. You don't see a lot of Parker commercials, but chances are you're interacting with the products daily. Yeah. Um, so clearly your scope is, let's just call it large, huge. That's a lot of employees to manage, right? And the, all the idiosyncrasies that come with multi-state compliance and all that. Yeah. So one of the things I like to ask is sort of an icebreaker is somebody like you, huge scope, a lot of employees, a lot of different jurisdictions. How yeah. do you keep up on the law? How do you keep educated from a compliance and legal perspective across all these different jurisdictions? 
You guys do a great job. A lot of firms do, but I'll just say, obviously, uh, Warriors does do a great job of putting out information that keeps people like me informed. Um, yeah, just, I mean, when, when something changes in the law, there's an article coming out very soon after, just explaining it, breaking it down, summarizing it. I do use a paid subscription as well to something called Lexology, mm-hmm. which I think is invaluable to any in-house lawyer, no matter what your practice is, because a lot of the articles that you would write and that firms would write are published there. Right. So I rely heavily on just the direct articles that I get from you, as well as um, the information that comes through Lexology. So really, it is the law firms that um, keep me up to speed. Yeah, and it's hard in your position, I, I imagine, because you can't be an expert on every single idiosyncrasy. Let's take first California. California, I like to argue, it has all the laws, not some laws. It has all of the laws, laws. especially in labor and employment. And so it seems like those kind of resources are invaluable for you to know at least that there's something out there and you know enough to dig deeper into it. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I I couldn't really say it any better, but you do. I, I can just reiterate that for a place like California, which is just all over the map in terms of specialness. Um, having a resource that just kind of, you know, informs and breaks down and clarifies is, yeah, I don't know what I would do without it. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it's great to have the information from, from your firm and from the paid sources, um, as opposed to having to rely on these, what I would say maybe are antiquated ways of getting information like books, right? What? Or, um, you know, like the old-fashioned research services, those things are just not as practical as right. just the direct information that, that the firm provides. So, right. So we, we, one of the reasons we had Angela on today for the audience is that Angela, I would say, is the goal has created what I would call the gold standard of checklists, protocols, process improvement. We were there. We did a lot of this, but Angela had laid the groundwork for it. Sure. And... In this specific arena, we're going to talk about today. And so today we're going to talk about what to do when you get sued. And in this arena, Parker has very robust and mature processes that because they are so large, they are just involved in litigation. Nobody Parker's size is not getting sued. I don't care how good you are. Lawsuits still happen because plaintiff's attorneys exist, quite frankly. And it's a business like anything else. And so wanted to have Angela on today to talk about those processes, because I think a lot of you out there, especially now. So in Ohio, the last two weeks, we saw a significant change in the law. The statutory framework in Ohio was almost gutted. It was at least transformed. And as a byproduct of that, we saw a wave, what we're calling the tidal wave, um, trademark, um, employment litigation um, in the last two weeks, about 400 labor and employment cases got filed in the last two weeks. It's a, a massive uptick in labor and employment cases. And it's not just been the Parker Hannafins and the Walmarts and the Eatons of the world. It has also been mom and pop shops. It's been, you know, small employer, large and small employer, a lot of midsize employers and across every conceivable industry. And so one of the things I think happens, especially if you've never been sued before, if you're one of these employers who's not familiar with lawsuits, you are probably going to see one. You may see one already or you're going to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to make sure that, you know, you know what to do when you get sued, because the, the, the literally the days and the weeks after you get sued are absolutely critical to getting your defense in order. And so 
That's why Angela's here. We're going to go through a couple of different things we can do. Mm-hmm. If you're a small employer, you can put in place today. I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Angela, would you recommend that these be put down in a protocol or something like that and shared? I do. I mean, anytime you're trying to have a process in place, you know, to keep you on track with litigation, you definitely want, you know, written protocols and checklists and things to um, share. And I'm happy to, you know, share information that I can with the audience. Um, so, yeah. Let's Am I answering it. your question properly? You are. You know what? <laughs> Move to strike is non-responsive. Okay. Um, <laughs> so, okay, let's start with the first thing. So okay. when a complaint gets filed, we, a lot of the outside law firms, we're going to see it, right? Angela may not see it right when it's filed, but certainly what's going to happen is there's going to be a complaint that's going to be mailed mm-hmm. out and that's going to happen in a couple of different ways. So Angela, how do you normally get notification that a lawsuit's been filed against your organization? Well, we have a company that we use to receive our service. It's called CT Corporation. Mm-hmm. Um, any company can sign up with CT Corporation to be the company that receives its service. But at the end of the day, you just need someone designated, whether it's someone internally or a company like CT Corp, to receive um, service of a complaint. So we get it through CT Corp, and that's how we know that we've been served. Yeah. And of course, that's really important too. So, I mean, Angela, have you seen it in the past where you know an organization might get it dropped at somebody's desk? They might get it dropped at the business. So that can happen. And, and in those instances, you know, it's critical if you're an organization and you don't have a statutory agent, it could just be dropped at the business. It could just be mailed to legal. It could be mailed yeah. to HQ. And so it's critical in that point, if you are a small business or you're a mid-sized business, you're not familiar with this, you don't have a statutory agent, that folks are trained to look for this kind of thing. They're, they're trained to look for certified or express mail that is coming from a court. And then there's a process in place for getting it to legal. And so Angela, Absolutely. you guys internally have a process that if it hits anywhere, your folks are trained to send it directly to legal, right? Yeah, we have a couple of paralegals who receive the notices from CT Corp and then each paralegal they can tell by looking at what's been served, which attorney should get it. Right. So I would get anything that's employment related. And so there's just a, you know, a protocol that says, look, if it's Eleni, it's Angela. Yeah. If yeah, it's, that's you know. What, yeah. We have our, I mean, you know, how it is with any department, people know their roles. We have uh, the paralegals assigned to the attorneys and, right. and they, they have to be able to look at a complaint and at least decipher the nature of it. Right. Right. Is, is it an employment lawsuit? Is it a product liability lawsuit? Is it something to do with IP? So they do have to be able to decipher those things, but it's not that hard. Um, Right. But yeah. Right. And then of course, if you don't have that in place, you know, throwing a dinger out once a year to your group, if you're in-house counsel, just to say, Hey, look, you may see something like this. If you see it, I need to see it immediately. Yeah. yeah, in practice, I've been in a position where a complaint sat somewhere because it got you know sent to a regional office or it just yeah. got sent to HQ and mm-hmm. nobody did anything with. It. And all of a sudden, it's like, okay, cool. Now we're in default. Uh, now we're in a terrible position to start yeah. this litigation. Oh, and yeah. so, so yeah, that kind of could be really helpful as well. Just making sure folks know the right process. Yeah, and I've had I, I've had lawsuits filed where we didn't get service. Um, so I knew it had been filed. And I checked the docket just to say, well, do we get served? And we hadn't been served, but there were all these hearings scheduled right. for, for several months down the road. It's like, how is this happening? And we haven't been served. I was on the lookout for this. We finally did get service, um, but I was worried, you know, because I'm like, are we going to somehow be found in default? Because right. the court does things differently. 
I know we didn't get served, hadn't gotten served at that point. So it was a little bit of concern about missing a deadline or something or going into default. Um, fortunately, the service time came. Yeah, so I think that dovetails great into the next point, which is, look, as soon as the organization gets notice that it's been sued, you need to contact, what, whether it's inside or outside counsel, but counsel mm-hmm. needs to be contacted and you need to look at deadlines. And that sounds like what you're talking about as well, is that, you know, Absolutely. once you know you've been served, somebody needs to get into that thing. And, you know, Angela, you probably are going out and looking at the actual court dockets, because almost all of them, unless you're in some just far flung area of nowhereville are going to be online. And so is that something you would do is jump onto the docket and just check what's going on? Yes, I would either look at the docket or look at the the document itself. It depends. Sometimes I've seen complaints where it says on there, you need to file your response within X date. Sometimes that's not clear. So then you have to check the docket. But either way, calculating that deadline right away um, is critical, even even if not before in conjunction with contacting outside counsel, because you know outside counsel is going to look out for you. Right. But you also just want to have it on your radar because, as the audience will know, the buck stops with you. If something gets <laughs> dropped, people on the business side aren't looking at outside counsel. They're looking at you. So you want to make sure that you docket that deadline, even in sending it to outside counsel, um, just so you have that backup so that you, you know, you're on top of it. Because if you don't, I mean, those deadlines sneak up on you. I mean, you think, okay, 21 days or 30 days is a good amount of time. You know, I'll get to it. But time moves quickly, as we all know, and even more <laughs> quickly when there's a deadline looming a few right. weeks away. So what's that saying you want to ask for? Usually the saying is it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission. Yeah. In case of litigation, it's the opposite. <laughs> it's the you really don't opposite. want to be asking the opposing counsel or the court to forgive you for missing that deadline. Yeah. You'd rather ask for permission to miss that deadline because you need a bit more time. Another reason why calculating that deadline is important because, okay, I'm not going to get it done in time. I've got three days left. Let me get that extension. Right. You don't want to go in and say to the court or opposing counsel, we had a bit of a whoopsie doodle. <laughs> um, we're going to need more time. Um, yeah. That may not go, that may go over fine. That yeah. may not go over fine, but in litigation, it's best to, again, just get ahead of that. When yeah. that happens for you, Angela, are you communicating those internal deadlines to stakeholders? Are you calendaring it? Or are you keeping people involved? Hey, X business unit got sued. Here's what we're going to have to do. How's that work for you? Yeah, it depends on the business unit. Always the HR person for that business unit. Okay. Because that's who's going to liaise. You know, and you recall from our dates working together, it's going right. to be your HR manager versus the supervisor or the ops manager who's who needs this information so you work, I work with the HR manager, or VP, with whichever the case may be. And that person keeps the business side folks informed of what's going on. It's just the, easier than me. Doing all yeah. that. Yeah. I mean, and that's part of your internal protocol, right? You know, it's Absolutely. locate that liaison, you know, find that stakeholder yeah. who's going to be in charge and yeah. going to be the person who's going to be shepherding things through, whether it's with the outside counselor with you. Right. That's part of your internal process. So we have lots of divisions all over the place and and some of the audience may have those operations. So you definitely, and this, this is sometimes tricky for us, look at the complaint to see, okay, well, what division does this relate to? Right. Because when when we get sued, so the plaintiff's counsel isn't necessarily going to know that, you know, Jane Doe, who used to work for us, worked at the Nantucket location (laughs) in Virginia. Totally making it right. up. They just know you worked for Parker. 
Parker will figure out who you are. We're just going to say <laughs> right. she worked for Parker. She was allegedly wrongfully terminated. Um, you know, and this was her role. They may or may not say, well, you know, what was her department or location? And sometimes right. it's a common name. So you may have to do that legwork to see, well, where does this go? Who should I be working with on the HR side? Right. Because you have no clue from the complaint who this person is and where this person right. works. So. So get that stakeholder, get them bought yep. in, get them ownership and let them know what the deadlines are. So that kind of moves into step three here, which I think is probably one of the most critical steps that a lot of people miss, especially yeah. those small to mid-sized employees. And that's the litigation hold. Yeah. And Angela, you guys have a pre-baked template litigation hold. And I'll let you talk about your process for that. But for folks who don't know, mm-hmm. litigation hold is just a, you know, a somewhat uh, forceful memorandum that goes mm-hmm. out to key stakeholders that says, look, mm-hmm. This thing has happened. We are now have an obligation to retain documents and here's the ground rules of all that. Mm-hmm. And so Angela, can you talk a little bit about what your litigation hold process looks like? Yeah, so I, um, one of the admins, um, what she would do, so it used to be, I, you know, whoever the attorney is would send um, send that memo out, that template memo, you know, we fill in the name of the, the complainant and send that template out to the stakeholders after we find out who they are. But the easier approach was, when that service comes in, the admin is copied. And, and my admin, she will look at the name of the former employee or employee, find out where that person worked, find out who the HR person was, who the supervisor was. She then, on my behalf, sends an email to all of those stakeholders saying, this complaint is attached. You now have a duty to preserve you know, various forms of information. Please read the attached which outlines all of your obligations. And also please send me the name of any person who was involved in this, who's not already copied because you don't want to miss. That's a critical piece too. Sometimes you miss names of people who should also have their stuff on hold. And we also include it in that email. She sends out the relevant it person is copied because that triggers it to automatically lock down the emails of everyone who's on that email chain. Right. So it's, it's a great, efficient way to get that out right away. So even before deadlines are logged or outside counsel is contacted, that litigation hold email and template is sent out to all the stakeholders. Right. So you got the pre-baked template mm-hmm. and you have a process in place for identifying what I would call the players. Mm-hmm. You know, if somebody's named in the complaint, obviously they need to be on there. In a labor yeah. and employment sphere, it's probably so-and-so supervisor. It might yeah. be a plant manager or yeah. somebody who may be involved in that. But certainly you need to cast a wider net and you're never going to get dinged for casting too wide of a net. You're going to get right. dinged for casting too narrow of a net. Exactly. Well said. Yeah. And you put it perfectly. You moved us right into step four, which is okay. IT. So Parker's <laughs> process, which I think is a really good one, is IT is involved early. The litigation hold is just copied to IT. They have been trained to know what to do. Mm-hmm. And you talked a little bit about, you know, suspension of email. So, and I would call that suspending routine destruction. You know, employers right. have a process that says, hey, you know, like if you're me and you have 7,000 emails in your inbox and they're, you know, two years old, some mm-hmm. of these might get destroyed because they're arguably not relevant anymore. Right. Um, and so right. that's pretty critical. And so for your IT operations, you're in, they know, right? They're pre-trained yeah. to know exactly what to hold. It's a broad whole. So they, it makes it easier for them to not have to figure out any specifics, what they know, or the people who are copied know if we're copied on this, 
we need to log down the email of the person referenced that, you know, um, well, that the, the employee who's suing would likely be, that email would already be deleted, but in case it's not, that would be retained and the, and the email of everyone copied. So they right. just lock down Outlook basically, or just, you right. know, so they don't even have to think about the details or, or specifically to keep. So anything in our system right. is just going to. And from an IT perspective, it's important too, to include things like if you're using OneDrive or some kind of cloud storage, I know Parker does that, they'll lock down OneDrive, Blackberries. I don't know why I said that. iPhones. I don't know who's using Blackberry. (laughs) Very relevant and timely reference. If you are hearing this in 1997, um, you should definitely lock down your Blackberry. But nowadays, iPhones and even I know Parker included in there later, like text messages and things like that and internal messages should also be the routine destruction of those should be suspended as well. Cause anymore, I mean, you're texting, you're using like using Skype or using teams and all that stuff needs to get locked down too. It actually is. I mean, when you think about the modes of communication, it's a lot that has to be put on hold and yeah. So well said. Yeah. So, I mean, it's really about getting with IT and making them understand the scope of what it is you need, not just emails. And if you're listening to this, you know, even if you haven't been sued and you're contemplating it, I mean, a project where you get together a litigation hold template and a protocol for how it works can save you critical time. Because if you're, if you get sued and you're rushing and you're like, Oh my God, now we got to do all this stuff. I listened to this really good podcast with Chaz and Angela and they said to do all these things. And I'm gonna have to go back and listen to the whole thing. There's no need to do that. Get the process in place ahead of time and have it ready. And it's not just labor and employment. You can have different templates for different Mm -hmm. kinds of litigation, but it's not Mm -hmm. a bad idea to have that locked and loaded. So you're not rushing because that's mistakes happen. Yeah. And this, and another comment, and this is with all due regard for our outside counsel, which is invaluable to the process. It saves you time, which saves you money. Because if you don't have these processes in place and you have to send it, you know, you have to rely on outside counsel to do all these things for you, they're going to do it perfectly. But if you're a small company, that's coming out of your budget. So you want to save as much time as you can on the, maybe you can call it the commodities work or the sort of generic, not generic tasks, but just those little tasks that you're capable of doing. You just need to take the time to do. um, And then use your outside counsel for for where it's most valuable, which is helping you defend against that lawsuit. So, you know, save yourself some pennies by just having a little bit of a process in place so that you're not scrambling or paying a ton to have it done. And absolutely. I mean, we have templates as well, but you're right. Yeah. I mean, it generates yeah. fees you don't need. I mean, we can give it yeah. to you. I can draft the whole thing and walk you through it. But if you have yeah. it ahead of time, you're at least yeah. going to short circuit a lot of that cost. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so next step, I think if you're one of these employers, and this depends on a lot of different factors, but you should check for EPLI coverage, right? Talk to your insurer. And that's one of the critical things. A lot of folks mm-hmm. get EPLI as part of their general business liability insurance. Mm-hmm. They may not even know you have it. So if you get sued, it's probably best check with the insurer, try to figure out whether you have coverage. And Yeah. Depending on the lawsuit in the jurisdiction, you have to disclose that. Right. So there's two reasons. There's check for it because it might save you a little bit of money, you know, once right. you get past that deductible, but also, you know, you might need to disclose that. Um, sometimes opposing counsel wants to know, you know, they yeah. and demand your EPLI information. Um, so I, I, I haven't had that situation happen, um, but I've heard of it. 
Oh, it does happen. Yeah, for yeah. sure does happen. So yeah, check because there are also carve outs, right? You may and you may think you have EPLI and it might be an FLSA case or something. Yeah. And a lot of times that's going to be carved out if it's a wage right. and hour case. So just, you know, if it's an intentional tort or wage and hour case, yeah. it may be carved out. So always best to get some opinion on coverage from your EPLI carrier. And I'd be yeah. remiss if I didn't also say that a lot of EPLI carriers will allow you to use your own counsel. You just need to ask. So if there you've you got go. a favorite, yeah. you just say, hey, I, I really like this one attorney would like to use. And a lot of times it can be worked out. You know, the rates yeah. are what they are. But mm-hmm. many, you know, if you've got a go-to counsel, a lot of times they can make it work. And so if you're familiar with somebody and from a cost perspective, if somebody's familiar with you, mm-hmm. um, that can be a huge cost-saving measure because nobody has to get up to speed. And, you know, if you're a small employer who does some niche thing that I have no idea what that is mm-hmm. and I'm coming in cold, mm-hmm. there's going to be a lot of prep work, unfortunately, for me to get up to speed. So if you've got that go-to counsel, that's helpful. Yeah. Um, what about into This is another interesting one. And I'm going to yeah. skip steps here and go back to one. Yeah. What about individual defendants? So this has been a hot topic. I know you, <laughs> you and I had many discussions about the like handful of jurisdictions that used to allow you to just yeah. sue folks, right? You just be right. somebody's supervisor. You just be hanging out, doing your thing, trying to yeah. make widgets. And all of a sudden you get, somebody says you're guilty of age discrimination. And you're like, I, what? And Ohio law just changed on that point, everyone. Now there's still a way you can get them in under Ohio yeah. law, but it's not as easy. Ohio it's did, nice. they, they did the Solomonic splitting of the baby, um, <laughs> which, which we on the defense side, where is that totally jacked about, but at least now it's not as easy for you to sue it's individual easy, defendants. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you do, Angela, when, when an individual defendant in one of these jurisdictions are saying Ohio and this new law, what happens yeah. when they get sued? What do you do? Well, you know, it's a, it's a conversation where, you know, I have to talk with that um, person and, you know, make clear, obviously you have the right to have your own counsel because you're right. an individual right. defendant. And if you do, you know, perhaps our counsels can work together to form a joint defense strategy, you know, cause we're essentially on the same side. There may be times though, where the same firm, the firm we're using for the company will pull in the individual as part of the, uh, you know, as being one of the clients. Um, but that's all contingent upon interest being aligned. Right. You know, if you find out that the individual named in some form or another acted egregiously and of that person's on the court, it may not be wise right. to, to do a joint defense. So you really do, you have to think through, you have to talk through with your outside counsel for the company um, about the circumstances of that individual being named and, and decide, does it make sense to do a joint defense or not? I mean, so there are a lot of, and you, Chaz, I think can probably speak to this a little better as outside counsel, you know, what kind of questions you'd ask for whether yeah. it, it makes sense to do a joint defense, but, but it's always a conversation at least. Yeah, I think that's the critical point, though, is just figuring out who's representing whom. Mm-hmm. And in those circumstances, you know, it, a lot of times early, and I know that you guys do this as well over at Parker, like a lot of times early, like there's this maybe bias, as long as there's nothing glaring in the record that yeah. talks about, in, you know, outside the scope of employment or intentional conduct. Yeah. That discussion a lot of times is like, hey, we see this, there's nothing to indicate any, you know, conflict of interest here between you and the company. And, you know, we can talk about joint representation, but the critical part is, is when outside counsel engages and, you know, Angela as an in-house counsel is going to be reviewing these, these letters and going to be helping guide this process. But the key is a disclosure that look, something comes up and we find out you stepped outside the scope of your employment, did something intentional or criminal. We're going to have to part ways. Yeah. 
And that's a tough conversation to have, right? right? Because you, you know, we're on the same side and you need that individual defendant is also a likely a key witness. So, right. you know, it's not an easy or pleasant conversation to have, No, but you have to have it. Yeah. And the thing I always tell people, and I gain a lot of this experience in house, you know, is that these are also people mm-hmm. and they're probably terrified. I mean, mm-hmm. I can't tell you how many yeah. individual defendants are, I, am I going to lose my house? Am I going to lose my job? Can everybody, you know, out just go pull this complaint down and it says that I, you know, discriminate or I harass somebody, you yeah. know, what's this going to do to me reputationally? And so, you know, are, what's that conversation like to kind of, mm-hmm. I guess, ease those fears to get that person, you know, the anxiety level down a little bit? You have to be, you know, realistic and, you know, you sort of, you know, you give the, the bitter with the sweet, I guess. Yes, right. this is a public record. Yes, the complaint says things about you and, you know, what they are. But realistically, this isn't the kind of thing that is just going to be out there for people to even know exists. And, you know, the record is going to be full. Like, it's not just going to be, at the end of the day, what's on the record isn't going to be just what was said about you in the lawsuit. You know, our testimony, our depositions will will be out there too. Um, But ultimately, these are just allegations. So there are a million ways you can make people comfortable. Um, and, and I would love to hear how you have this conversation, but for me, it's just sort of being straightforward and minimizing the significance of it being a public record. I mean, yeah, it's a big deal, but it's like, who's pulling this? And if, (laughs) I mean, worst case scenario, if it does come out, just remember, they're just allegations. People will say anything in a complaint just to get it filed. Right. None of this can or should be taken as the truth. It's just, you know, what someone is alleging. So that's my approach. What do you know? No, I I think that conversation bitter with the sweet is exactly right. You know, you got to tell them, look, you know, this is serious. It's absolutely serious, right? There's a, you know, but the company at this point is standing by you. There's nothing to indicate that, you know, you've done anything outside the scope of your employment. And I do the same thing where I'm like, look, man, Plain dealer in the Akron Beacon Journal are not picking this up. Like local man sued for harassment. Like it's, it's just not, that doesn't not happen. So, yeah. So like, I mean, do you think like, our, I'm not routinely checking every docket in every single Ohio County to see if somebody I know got sued for discriminate, right? Like yeah. it just doesn't work like that. Right. So I try to tell people, you know, look, it's probably not going to be a media thing. <laughs> if it is, we have a comms place and plan to we deal do. with these inquiries, right. yada, yada, yada. But we got you know, some this PR is, folks that can help right, you with something. Right, right, right. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, have you seen the news? I I don't think, you know, local woman gets sued for age discrimination is going to be on the uh, Chiron on CNN, right? Like it's just, it's not going to happen, but you know, to just tell them, look, you know, and you can load them up with the exact exact same stuff. Angela was saying, these are merely allegations. We're going to put an answer in, we're going to deny all this stuff. And that's the, that's going to be the more complete record. And, you know, you should not lose any sleep over this. Mm -hmm. You know, right now, no, no one's saying your job's in jeopardy. You're going to yeah. lose your house or anything yeah. like that. Yes, yeah. these allegations look very official and they look very right. scary. Right. But I also try to inform people as well when I talk to individual defendants that just like you have a business, this is in a mm-hmm. way a business, right? I mean, right. lawsuits do happen. They are routine in right. business. And, yeah. you know, it's it's easy for us as in-house counsel to be like, yeah. hey, we've seen 100,000 of these things and like they don't yeah. really bother me. Yeah. But I think keeping in mind that these are human beings who have never been sued before. Right. They're going to be angry. They're going to be scared. And just having those conversations like Angela was talking about to kind of walk them back a bit and say, look, we got you. Yeah. Yeah. That I think what that last part is really 
that's what people want to hear. That's what the individual defendants right. managers want. We got you, you know. Right. Barring some discovery of like, oh, you were just really out here hiding and taking pictures of when they <laughs> go up the stage. I mean, we got you. That, right. that's, I love that. We could do a whole podcast on insane things we've heard internally. Like I, I thought about doing a whole episode. It's just crazy HR stories, but I'd have to do everything like anonymous. Like you'd have oh, to do like sure. the, <laughs> for the sure. like the blacked out, like deep voice, like one time. <laughs> but I think it's true. Like, you know, when you talk to these people, like the other thing I think is in-house counsel, you got to keep in mind is like, you don't actually know what happened at that point. And so to Angela's point, you do have to hedge a little bit, which is like, we got you. There's nothing that, you know, right yeah. now gives us any cause yeah. for concern. Yep. We're going to continue to investigate it. And we'll right. at every inflection point, we will look at this again. And like, you know, right. there'll be no reality where we just cut you loose without talking to you. Right. You know, this is an evolving thing. Yeah. Um, that's the part. You don't want to over promise. Right. Right. <laughs> you don't want to be like, no, no matter what happens, we will defend you to death. Exactly. Do not have that conversation. Not quite that generous. It's, yeah, exactly. We got you. So, so far. <laughs> and we hope it stays that way. Right. Yeah, exactly. And I, I could say from experience and Angela, you tell me, I mean, the overwhelming majority of my cases, joint representation mm-hmm. when gone into in a considered fashion mm-hmm. is the right approach and generally, you know, remains throughout the life of the, the, the actual litigation. There, I've had a handful <laughs> of occasions where we had to split counsel up, but generally speaking, if you're going to enter yeah. a joint rep, that that's going to be a, a, a helpful relationship throughout the litigation. Yeah. Well, I can say in the, in the years that, 13 or so years that I've been doing this, I've never seen that situation go bad. Right. It start whether it's two counsel, one for the company, one for the individual defendant working together throughout, or right. whether it's one firm representing everyone. I've never seen that have to be changed because yeah. of factual issue or anything like that. Nope. Right. Because you usually have a pretty good idea going into it. You don't know everything, but you got a pretty good yeah. idea what happened. Like to Angela's yeah. point, you're talking to that HR person in the yeah. beginning and they're going to give you some download about what this thing's about. Yeah. And, you know, that's going to help inform the determination. And, and then you can also offload of that to outside counsel to say, hey, look, we think joint representation is probably appropriate here. Dig in a bit. Tell us, you know, what you yeah. think about it. Because it's not about the other thing is it's not about whether the individual defendants acted perfectly. Because they may right. have made mistakes. They may have inadvertently broke a rule or something. Right. It, it's really when you are acting intentionally outside of your role that, you know, and it's shown to have caused these allegations that generally there's going to be an issue with joint representation. Right. But just because you didn't do something perfectly or, or a mistake you made, you know, cause this lawsuit allegedly, that's not the deciding factor. Right. Representation. You know, right. Yeah, that's a good point. So next, I think, you know, once you've made all these contacts, you have your stakeholders in place. Mm-hmm. One of the things that Parker did a good job of, and I have admittedly copied in my my practice as well, is this, mm-hmm. this document and information gathering that you guys do internally and, and with a checklist and a sheet mm-hmm. that just sort of goes out. Can you talk a little bit about how you begin to get an idea of what happened and you begin mm-hmm. to assemble the documents you need, whether it's for outside yeah. counsel or inside? You guys know this. When you're defending a lawsuit, you have a million questions from, you know, verifying the date of employment to tell me what happened in that termination meeting. What was the termination reason versus what did you tell the person was the termination reason? Right. Unfortunately, those are not always the same thing. You know, even if it's not an unlawful thing, sometimes there's just a disconnect between what your reason was and how you communicated it to them. Sure. So the questionnaire covers... I think it's maybe 20 questions on it, but everything that's typically 
going to be necessary for outside counsel to use or to know in terms of preparing for the defense. And then it also has a list of things you need to attach. So HR, we send this to HR, you know, early in the process and say, you know, answer all these questions and send us all these documents. And those documents, of course, personnel file, investigation files, um, planning documents, if that's, you know, what was involved, um, medical file, you know, if it's a, a disability claim or something like that. So, yeah, it's just answer a ton of questions um, from basic to more detailed about the person's employment history um, and send the documents listed. Right. And yeah, this is, you know, critical because this yeah. is also one of those things that's going to be able to short circuit your timeline and, and help with costs because it's it's the stuff that when Angela and I were in house and me as outside counsel, I'm going to ask you for anyway. Like, what's the person's yeah. name? When, when were they terminated? <laughs> like, you know, just back basic background stuff yeah. that, you know, I can flip the outside counsel. If you're it, you can flip the outside counsel as insider yeah. as outside counsel, I get a hold of. And it's like, now I don't have to pepper Angela with mm-hmm. 200 questions, um, you know, in, in 25 emails. And then it gets into <laughs> see my red highlights, see my blue highlights, like yeah. all that. It's just bam. It's one place. There's no question that's privileged. It's either work product or attorney client communication because it's right. coming right from legal saying, right. hey, we got sued. We need to get our ducks in a row. Right. Get me this information ASAP. And, and it is a yep. huge time saver. A huge time saver. I mean, this this isn't something that um, Parker did, you know, all, you know, throughout its experience with employment litigation. Chaz, we might have even developed this before you left, right? This was something yeah. that we worked on together. Yeah. Um but it just sort of, you know, a light bulb went off. Like we answer the same 50 questions for outside counsel every, <laughs> every time, time we send, you know, a lawsuit over. Right. Maybe just put that on a form and have yeah. it completed, you know, <laughs> when yeah. we send the complaint. So, well, and then if you're in-house counsel, it just saves you a ton of time because you got it and you can just flip it to outside counsel. Yeah. And it's especially good in litigation because like, if I get that stuff early, I can be extremely aggressive Mm -hmm. and I can get an answer filed really quickly or a motion to dismiss whipped up. Um, And especially with, you know, one tactic in litigation can be speed, Mm -hmm. right? You know, making the other side work, short circuiting the process by getting Mm -hmm. filings in early, moving Mm -hmm. as fast as possible and just showing you the other side, hey, we're serious and we're going to defend this thing, you know, vigorously. Um, And that stuff is critical early. Yeah. Another thing in terms of information gathering, and this is for in-house counsel to get from outside counsel, that's a basic case assessment, summary and assessment. You don't want, what you do want is to know, okay, what are we sued for? Like, what are the, what are the, the claims? What does this person prove? And it's not a memo or a long dissertation. It's you were sued for age discrimination. This person has to prove in particular, that the reason they were affected was because of age. Right. Um, they, you know, that they were replaced by a significantly younger person, whatever those elements are, because it, it may all seem easy in your head or, or like it's an intuitive thing to know, but you really do want to understand, you know, each cause of action and the elements that have to be proven by the plaintiff to prevail on each cause of action. It's going to come right. in quite handy when one of the business leaders says, what do you think our chances are here? Right. (laughs) Right. If you know that the person, one of the things the person has to prove is that, you know, she was replaced by a younger person. I mean, just to use something easy and you know that well, she hasn't even been replaced, the job went away totally. Right. You know, you can say with some degree of confidence, 
probably feel pretty good. You know, the right. one thing she has, there's one thing she has to prove that she can't, right? And right. so I am being a little, I'm oversimplifying a little bit. Right. Because we know it can be a little more complicated than that. But you at least as in-house counsel, or if you're a company that is having just HR or a business person liaison these cases, um, that you can speak somewhat intelligently about the case to the state yeah. who are asking you things. Yeah, I think that's a great pro tip for in-house counsel because you're going to have to report up and yeah. <laughs> you know make make outside counsel tell you, yeah. this is what this case is. Here's yeah. the jurisdiction. Here's what we know yeah. about the judge because guess yeah. who's going to ask you that? Either the GC or if you're the GC, the CEO, the CFO, whoever's yeah. in charge, somebody's going to ask you what is going on here. And for you to have that cheat sheet is pretty critical early in the game because you're going to yeah. start need to making those assessments. So that's a, that's a really good call out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the short time we have left, Angela, I want to ask you one thing, and this is interesting. Like, so Parker is such a large organization, but mm -hmm. relative to its size, it mm -hmm. does a really good job of keeping litigation, I think, to a minimum. Is there any tips or tricks? You know, now that it, we're talking about litigation's been filed, yeah. you know, here's how you respond to it. But do you have any pro tips about how to keep litigation down before or quell it before it starts? I will have to say, just to be frank, to some degree, I think we're lucky. Because like you said, I mean, we get very few lawsuits for our size. And we do our fair share of terminations, right? For, right. for any company. Every so organization does that size, yeah. Yeah, so so there's, I think, you know, we're lucky to a certain degree. But to the extent there's a reason, you know, we ha I have to give credit first to our culture. And, and by that, I mean, we know we're an at-will employer, but it's not always about do we need a reason or, or, or legal reason? It's about, you know, what makes sense? How do, you know, we care about how we treat people um, and our HR leaders, they understand how to be thoughtful. I mean, they spend a lot of time really being thoughtful about whether termination is the appropriate step for some person, helping the managers understand what they need to think about. They understand when to call legal to talk through potential risks because it's not, often about legally, is this an okay reason to let someone go? It, because it's, you know, it's not about that. It's, we're at right. Real, right? But it's, does this make sense for a whole right. host of reasons? And sometimes we do exercise, you know, at will, but even in doing that, you know, there's the, there's a thoughtfulness to it. Yeah. Um, so I think because of how much thought usually goes into these decisions, we're, we're not uh, experiencing a lot of disgruntled, disgruntled former you know, employees who just right. can't wait to sue us. You know, we're not perfect, but I think, you know, our culture um, being what it is and the HR leadership we have, I think those two things. Yeah. You guys have really like baked in this fairness principle, which I think, you know, a lot of employers should think more about. I mean, calling a lawyer and saying, can I sue somebody? That to me is the last question you need to yeah. ask. The first question is, is this fair? Is this equitable? Yeah. Because juries don't care about the law. There's <laughs> right. a little pro tip. Like they, they are going to not look at it strictly based that they're going to look at a lot of yeah. different things and fairness is a lot of it. And yeah. you can say hey, it's a long-term employee. This seems like not that, you know, big of an infraction, yeah. those kinds of things. There are all these other equitable points that you need to consider before. And I think that's a great call out. It's just having that culture that engages mm -hmm. people, keeps them happy. Yep. And at the same time, thinking a lot about fairness on the front end and not whether, you know, and, and a lot of times internally too, you know, like 
temperatures run hot. Somebody wants yeah. to pull the trigger. It's always Friday at four 30 yeah. yes. yeah. pumping the, and Angela, you do a good yeah. job of pumping the brakes and saying, let's just think about this a little just bit. Calm down a bit, you know, because right. <laughs> when you're in the trenches, you know, you're the manager, you're in the trenches, you see somebody who you think is screwing up and you're sick of it. Right. Right. And you're just like, I just need to get someone in here. That's, that's right. going to be reliable and part of work. And that's where HR comes in to say, okay, let's all breathe. Right. And let's just think, maybe we do need to let this person go, but taking right. 10 minutes to talk it through won't hurt. <laughs> you know, Priceless. and we go from there. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 Because look, I mean, we tell people all the time, you, you know, you and I did internally, I tell them outside, look, law lawsuits are very expensive. So keep in mind, like this will be highly disruptive and incredibly expensive. I don't care how quick you get out, it will still be expensive. And that's particularly true for small employers. You know, yeah. a lawsuit probably costs Parker just as much as it costs a small employer. And yeah. a lot of people, you know, can't absorb those costs. So think really intentionally about stopping litigation before it starts. And that's yeah. a culture and a fairness thing. So I think it's a good call out. Yeah. And I just, just back, you know, in another lifetime when I was outside counsel, I remember representing a company that, you know, was doing, a, it, was, it was a good business, but fairly small. And they got sued by, you know, a person. It was so expensive for this company. Yeah. I mean, I'm not eloquently summarizing it, but I'm just saying in real life, if, especially if you're a growing company, you just don't want the headache of right. litigation. It, it can yeah. wipe out. It can, yep. it, depending on where you are, it can, it can undo your P&L, if that's the thing. That's the way. <laughs> no, it's totally true, Meg. You know, yeah. bad. Bad culture breeds lawsuits and those yeah. things are tough. I mean, they are expensive. And if you get one or two of them and you're a small employer, I mean, it, it can be, everything can be bet the farm litigation or it bet the company be. litigation. It just, yes. you don't want to get there. So thanks everybody for joining. That was a fun conversation and I hope you came away with it with some processes and tips you can use today in your workplace. Be sure to rate and review us on Apple or Spotify. That helps us get the word out. And as always, if you have a podcast episode suggestion, please reach out and let us know. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.